Good morning, friends. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 16, 13 through 23, and you can find that on page 798 in your pew Bible. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind on not divine things, but on human things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Did you see how quickly that happened? See how quickly Peter went from being bedrock to stumbling block? In five verses. Good morning, by the way. My name is Rob Lau, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing our sermon series called The Rock, Flawed but Faithful. Peter was flawed, and he was faithful, and what he teaches us is that our God exclusively, exclusively uses flawed but faithful people to build the kingdom. And today, we are going to see both Peter's successes and his failures on display as we discuss this topic of bedrock or stumbling block. And and I want to invite you, right as we begin here, if you've got a Bible, turn it to Matthew chapter 16. If, there, if you don't have one, there's one in the pew back in front of you. But most of what we're going to do today is just walk through this scripture and try to unlock the depth of what we find in this text. First thing I want to do is is locate it for us. Jesus took his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of where the disciples lived. It would have been a full day's journey. And what you see on the screen here is in Caesarea Philippi. It's a 70-foot rock face going up the, mount, the side of Mount Hermon. And you'll see the rock face is, is interrupted there by a cave. Before this region was called Caesarea Philippi, the area was known as Panaeus. It was named for the Greek god Pan, who was the god of nature, and at the back of that cave was an altar where people would make sacrifices to Pan. But by the time Jesus took his disciples here, a temple had been constructed outside of that cave. If you look very closely, you can see some of the bedrock of that temple. A temple was built just outside of that cave, and the temple had been dedicated to the emperor Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, a profoundly powerful, powerful man. Now, 
Herod the Great built this temple, but after Herod died, his son Philip came to the region and expanded the temple, and he made the entire temple, he made it into a whole town, and dedicated the entire town to the worship and veneration of Caesar. That's why it was called Caesarea. It was venerating Caesar. Uh, but Herod had already built another town called Caesarea, so this one was called Philip's Caesarea, or Caesarea Philippi. And one question we could ask ourselves is, why in the world would Jesus bring his disciples to this hotbed of idolatry, where people for generations had been worshiping Pan and nature, where they had started to worship Augustus Caesar and power? Why would Jesus bring the disciples to this place for this conversation i think it was on purpose jesus brought them to this region of caesarea philippi on purpose you know one could say that the only sin that any of us truly wrestle with is the sin of idolatry now, when I say idolatry, some of us think about golden statues and bowing down to worship them. That's not idolatry. Idolatry is not an action. Idolatry is a state of being. Anytime I put anything other than Jesus Christ at the center of my life, I am practicing idolatry. And so Jesus brought the disciples to this supermarket of idols in order to ask them the question, Who am I? Look at verse 15 with me, if you would. It came to the reason of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, Elijah or John the Baptist. Others uh, say uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then, then Jesus got to the real question, didn't he? But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up. And he says, You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. What does that mean? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, the word Messiah harkens back to the time of David. God made a covenant with David. God said to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And Peter is saying, you are that descendant. The second thing he says is, you are the son of the living God. Now think about where they were. They were just outside the temple in the city named for Caesar Augustus. A a man who was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar had declared himself to be a god... But then he died. Notice what Peter says here. In the shadow of the temple to Augustus Caesar, a man who believed himself to be the son of God, Jesus says, Peter says to Jesus, you are the son not of a dead God, you are the son of a living God. It's a pretty good answer, wouldn't you agree? Like four of you, hallelujah, praise the Lord. (laughs) You are the son of the living God. Wow. Now, Watch what happens next. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, or Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Did you see what happened there? 
The moment Peter became clear about Jesus' identity, Peter began to get clarity around his own identity. The moment Peter became clear about Christ's identity, Peter began to get clarity around his own identity. Listen, there's no other idol, no other thing we would place at the center of our lives that has the power to tell us who we are, except Jesus. Here's the point of emphasis in our lives early on in this text. I am not going to find fulfillment in any task, not my job, not keeping my house, nothing. I'll find fulfillment in no task. I will find true fulfillment in no relationship until I am clear about who I am. Until that moment, all relationships, all endeavors will be slightly at least inauthentic. And so often we will spend our time looking through various lenses to try and discover who we are. We'll look through the lens of our work. We'll look through the lens of our relationships. We'll look through the lenses of our successes and our failures and allow those things to tell us who we are, to give us our identity, our worth. But all of those lenses give us a distorted view of ourselves. There is only one way to know who I am. And it's to look at myself through the lens of Jesus Christ. Once Peter had clarity around Christ's identity, Peter began to have clarity around Peter's identity. And the same is true for all of us. Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock. And the word Jesus uses to describe uh, Peter as the rock is the word Petra. Now, here's what's interesting about that word. In Greek, the word for a rock, like you walk by and you pick up a rock, is actually the word lithos. You know what Petra means? Petra means a ledge or a cliff. They're standing there in front of this 70-foot rock face on the edge of Mount Hermon, and Jesus calls Peter the ledge upon which he's going to build his church. Who in the world would build something on a ledge? We want the safety of... Our houses, we want them to be built not on a ledge, we want them to be built on solid footing. But we long, we long for safety and Jesus is saying to us, if you follow me, you are going to be living on an edge. Peter is the rock, the ledge from which the church is going to jump off. Here's the other thing I think is really interesting. In this passage, It's not just that we get clarity around who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and it's not just that we gain clarity around who Peter is, but when Jesus is talking to Peter, Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. We start to gain clarity around who we are. So if you've got your Bibles open, I don't care if it's your Bible or the church's Bible, I want you to circle that word church. Go ahead, circle it right now. Your pastor is giving you permission to write in your Bible. Circle that word church. Why? Because this is the first time in history that anyone had ever conceived of the church of Jesus Christ. It happens right here. Right here in this conversation with Peter. Jesus says, you are the rock and upon this rock I will build my church. And the word Jesus uses for church is the word ecclesia. And ecclesia means a people who are called out. A people who are called out. That's what the church is. We are a people who are called out. But when we understand it in its particular context, it means something more. You see, in the ancient Near East, 
oftentimes towns would be together, they'd build a wall around the town and they would, they would elect or appoint some kind of a leader to help lead their town. Now, if the people in the town become dis, became dissatisfied with the leader of their town, somebody would start running through the streets yelling the word, Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia. They would call people out to the center square. And once people were there, they would often unseat their leader and install a new leader. So when Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia, the disciples didn't just hear that they were a people who were called out. The disciples heard that the church was a people who are called out to revolution. That's the church. We are a people who have been called out to a revolution in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a revolution in which we say no to hate and yes to love, no to division and yes to unity, no to idols and the pursuit of power and yes to the one true God and servant leadership. All of this was unleashed on the world because Peter began to gain clarity around who Christ was. I just want to show you something else about, about Peter in, in this moment as we're talking about the rock. Later in Peter's life, Peter would um, write two epistles, the epistles of First and Second Peter. I want to read you an excerpt from First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says this, Come to Christ, a living stone, Though rejected by mortals, chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. See, it was upon the bedrock of Peter's faithfulness that others would begin to find Christ. But here's what Peter teaches us in his epistle. He says that we are all stones. All of us. That God is using us to be built upon. I think one really good question to ask of ourselves in the midst of this text is, have I allowed God to use me to be someone else's bedrock of faith? Who's counting on me to be their rock, to help them build their spiritual house? One of the things that's really exciting that's happening at Ebenezer right now, and it started just a few months ago, there are some men in our congregation who were feeling just spiritually unsettled. And they started to share this unsettled reality with each other. And, and they brought me into the conversation. And they started to dream about how the men of Ebenezer Church might stand up as a force for God and good in this world. And two things that I'm deeply, deeply impressed by, by their conversation. The first was this. These, these men were saying about themselves, they said, for years we've been poured into People up through sermons, through Bible studies, through relationships, people have been pouring into us. And now we want to start sharing those things that we have learned and those things that we know. And the second thing they said was, we want to help other people along their path. We want to be mentors. We want to be mentored. You know what they're describing? They're describing being living stones, church. Jesus says to Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Look what happens next. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail 
against it. There are two ways, I think, of understanding this idea that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. One way is to think that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are going to be under assault from evil, but if we just hold on, everything's going to be okay. Unfortunately, that's not what Jesus really says. Jesus doesn't say the gates of heaven will hold, does he? Jesus says the gates of hell won't. Jesus wasn't advocating for a defensive posture. He wasn't saying keep your head down and wait for the barrage to stop. Jesus was saying if God's people take the fight to darkness, the gates of hell will not survive the onslaught of the church. Not even death will survive this revolution. So one question that could emerge for us from this part of the text is this. Have I been sheltering in place, waiting for the barrage to stop? Or have I been taking the fight to darkness? Last week I introduced some of the initiatives that we are undertaking in relationship with the people in the Bow District of Sierra Leone. As I I told you, Tina DeBosier and I are Director of Mission and Outreach. We're going to Sierra Leone. And when she first found out I was going on the trip, Tina pulled me aside and she said, I just want to prepare you for something. And I said, okay. She said, you need to know that it's very likely that in the course of your time in Sierra Leone, a mother is going to walk up to you and try and give you her baby to take home. And at first I recoiled from that. What kind of a mother? What kind of a mother would try and give away her child? But if you think about it just a moment longer, what an act of sacrifice. Trying to give her child the prospect of a better life somewhere else. Here's why I'm telling you this. It's not to make us feel bad. It's it's to help us know that the forces of darkness are strong in other places in the world. And the reason Tina and I are going, and eventually we'll go to Sierra Leone, It's not just so we can feel good about ourselves. It's so that we can take the fight to the darkness. And here's my question for you. Have you, as the follower of Christ, who's been poured into by the church for years, have you been sheltering in place just waiting for the end? Or have you been taking the fight to darkness? The next thing Jesus says in this passage is, He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is an important passage in our Christian tradition. It's in large part because of this passage that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters esteem the the primacy of the papacy. uh, Why the Pope is so important. Uh, it's partly because of this passage that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters believe the Pope has the power of excommunication to exclude someone uh, from the, communi- the community of, of the body. I have a, a wife who grew up Roman Catholic. I have family members who are Roman Catholic. I have friends who are Roman Catholic. And I'm here to tell you, people can grow in love with Jesus Christ in the Roman Catholic Church just like they can grow in love with Jesus Christ in the United Methodist Church. 
But I want to offer an alternative interpretation of this text. See, the things that Jesus says about the power he is giving is he uses the words, I'm giving you power to bind and I'm giving you power to loose. And those words were exactly the same words used in the ancient Near East in Israel when rabbis would come together and they would debate the merits of a biblical text. They'd come together and they'd have these conversations and then they'd go out to their community and they would say, after much debate and prayer, we've discovered that this activity is forbidden by Scripture. And when the rabbis said this activity was forbidden by Scripture, the language they used to describe that was they said this activity is now bound. Now sometimes they'd come together and they would pray and they'd read the Bible and they'd interpret and, and discuss together and they'd come out to the people and they'd say after much prayer and discussion we've, we've found that, that this activity over here, this thing is now permissible. And when they made something permissible, the language they used was this thing has been loosened. So if we put that in context, what's happening? What's Jesus really telling Peter? I believe that one way to understand this passage is to say that Jesus was telling Peter and all those who come after him, you have the power to bind things like sin. And you have the power to unleash and loosen things like life. If you are willing to interpret, apply, and share the word of God. Because that's what the rabbis were doing so long ago. They were interpreting, applying, and sharing the word of God, binding and loosing it. And Jesus tells Peter and the church that would follow him that we also have the ability to bind things and loose them if we are willing to interpret, apply, and share the word of God. Peter was the rock. He was the ledge that the revolution of Jesus was going to jump off of. He and those who followed him had the power to bind and loose based on their interpretation and application of the word of God. Like all of us, Peter was faithful at times. And like all of us, Peter was flawed at times. Just moments after the revolutionary encounter that Peter has with Jesus, Jesus starts to talk about what comes next for him. That in just six months' time, Jesus would find himself crucified. And that he would be resurrected from the dead. Jesus is doing his best to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen later. And the Bible tells us that Peter did not want to hear this. Look with me in verse 23. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Mm. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. I think what we're seeing is that Peter was prepared to be the rock upon which the revolution of power was built. Peter was unprepared to be the rock upon which the revolution of sacrificial love was built. And Jesus responds to him in kind of a harsh way. Jesus turns to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Why would Jesus say that? Well, 
You remember back at the beginning of Christ's ministry, Jesus had been baptized and then he went into the desert for 40 days and was at the end of that time he was tempted and Satan tempted him in three different ways. The third and final and I think the most difficult temptation was that Satan took Jesus up on a mountainside and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth and what Satan said to Jesus was, I will give all of this to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. You know what the real temptation there was? Satan was trying to give Jesus everything without Jesus having to go to the cross. And that's exactly what Peter was trying to do too. It's exactly what Peter was trying to do too. There's no need to go to the cross, Peter said. We can take this thing by force. We have seen your power, Lord. You know, God could compel our obedience anytime God wanted to simply by taking away our human freedom. Jesus Christ didn't come to the earth to compel our obedience. Jesus Christ came to the earth to win our hearts. And that can't happen through the exercise of power. It can only happen through love. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. In the span of just five verses, Peter goes from being the rock upon which Christ is going to build his church to being a stumbling block to the cause of Christ. Why? It was because Peter didn't understand. Peter thought that true change came from power. Jesus had actually taken them to a place where power was being worshipped. This whole place was named for Augustus Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. Peter thought that the Jesus revolution was going to be one of power, a military uprising. All of the disciples believed that from the time they were children. They were told about the Messiah who was going to come and unseat Rome and return Israel to power. Peter's revolution would have come through the imposition of power. The Jesus revolution was going to come from sacrificial love. Friends, I believe that oftentimes we become stumbling blocks to the cause of Christ for the same reason. Peter wanted to protect the thing that he loved the most. The idea that the Messiah was the one who was going to return Israel to power. Peter had to choose between his idea of the Messiah and the actual Messiah. And I would suggest that we have to do the same thing. Often we will go to the mat to prop up institutions and philosophies and worldviews. We'll go to the mat to protect our safety and our comfort. And in so doing, we miss the chance to follow Jesus' example of love and sacrifice. This is an incredibly important passage, and here's what I think is the biggest lesson that we can take from it. How do I ensure that I am being bedrock, not a stumbling block? Well, according to this story, the litmus test is one of sacrificial love. Am I living my life in such a way that is designed to preserve and protect me and mine? If so, there's a fair chance I'm regularly a stumbling block for Christ and for other people. However, if I'm living my life 
in regular sacrifice to Christ, I'm likely the bedrock of faith that others are building their spiritual houses upon. So it really comes back to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus the convenient God who allows us to live our lives of comfort and safety, or is Jesus the revolutionary, calling us to live on an uncertain ledge, offering the kind of sacrificial love that others can build their lives upon? You know how Jesus ends this exchange in Caesarea Philippi? It's with these words. Then Jesus told the disciples, If any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. But those who lose it for my sake will find their lives have been saved. Will you be a bedrock or a stumbling block for the cause of Christ? The answer to that question depends on the answer to another Who do you say Jesus is? Do you think Jesus is the God who asks us to hunker down until the barrage is over? Do I think Jesus is here to help me solidify my power, my worldview, and my safety? Or do I think Jesus is calling me to follow him in taking the fight to darkness? Do I think Jesus is calling me to a life of sacrifice and love? Who do you say Jesus is? Would you pray with me? Holy God, We confess that there have been times that we have tried to make you in our image rather than allowing you to make us in yours. There have been times that we have treated you as an excuse to keep the ideas and the actions, the safety and the ease of our lives. God, forgive us. Because that is not your dream for your church. You call your people out to a revolution. Not of power, but a revolution of sacrifice and love. So God, I pray that on this this last Sunday of September 2019, that your church would hear your call. And that we would take the fight to the darkness. That we would stop huddling and waiting for the barrage to be over, but that we would take the fight. Though it will require sacrifice and an abundance of love. Let us follow your example. And together build your kingdom as we change the world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And always for the sake of his kingdom. And all of God's people said.
Amen.